Welcome, everybody, to another episode of State of Murder. I'm your host, Selena Cooper. I'm your other host, Amber Ratzliff. And we are in the bluegrass state this week, Kentucky. I'm trying to think if I know any songs about Kentucky. I, I, I can't think of any. In elementary school, we were taught a song about the fast food places. So we were taught Kentucky Fried Chicken and a Pizza Hut, McDonald's, McDonald's, Kentucky Fried Chicken and a Pizza Hut. And there was like, well, you okay, obviously but, our listeners can't see me, but I'm doing little dances to it. <laughs> little, little motions like YMCA, but like chicken and McDonald's. Chicken and the arches. Yeah, it was I'm, terrible. <laughs> why? Why? I don't understand why that's the song they would teach you in school. I don't know. <laughs> Capitalism? I have no idea. ABC. I don't know. <laughs> no. Yeah, well, this was like obviously when we were older, but I don't know. My brother remembers it too. So I wonder if anyone else went to elementary school in the 90s in Fresno. Let me know if you learned that song. But I remember, yeah, they. I don't know what it was. It was just because we would sing like random songs. So it was that. And that then, is such okay. capitalism commercialism because what are you going to do when you go home? Yeah, you're going to talk about Kentucky Fried Chicken, a Pizza Hut, and McDonald's. And so, yeah, every time I that song randomly pops into my head sometimes, Kentucky Fried Chicken and a Pizza Hut. <laughs> oh my so God. I don't know, like, I don't know why they taught us that. That's terrible. <laughs> do not teach young children that. Like, that's straight up, like, targeted marketing right there. Yeah, like, is. let's get these kids now. Because I had to have been, I'm trying to think what class I was even, I had to have been around, like, fourth grade maybe no maybe it was younger than that I don't know I can't remember all I remember like when we were learning like we would have tv like morning announcements on a tv when I was in like later elementary school and then my first year of middle school and then there was the I want to be like Mike was huge and so it was kind of like a big Nike commercial (laughs) but it'd be like I want to be I want to be like Mike (laughs) and then that's how we would open the morning announcements was like this my like be like Michael Jordan (laughs) and everybody wanted his cool shoes (laughs) so there's some uh, we had commercialism too yeah commercialism yeah that's terrible i wonder if they still do they probably don't i would hope that they don't teach that in elementary school anymore but well my nephews are in elementary school in fresno and i've never heard that song (laughs) well good so yeah that's yeah i don't even couldn't even tell you why or what other songs i remember singing other songs in addition to that but i don't know what the purpose was or like why my dad was kind of pissed because he was like what the fuck like why are they learning this shit but i don't know yeah me and my brother just remember that song in school like we did the whole little movements and everything to it so yeah arguably i don't need any of those places now we never ate pizza hut i hate pizza hut it's gross but like in terms of ranking pizza like i would not i I put pizza Pizza hut above me and ed's in about uh, a zillion no. ways. <laughs> no. It goes me and Ed's. Garbage. And then De Chico's. Garbage and also. And then the Curry Pizza Company is Oh, yeah, that, good. Pe- that pizza's good. <laughs> no, not the Curry Pizza Hut. Uh, Chicago Pizza with a twist. twist. That, that place I haven't good. tried Curry Pizza Place, but I hear it's pretty good. It is. I've and then it. I would choose Domino's. And then... Little Caesars, <laughs> and then Pizza Hut, and then Round Table, and then Papa John's. <laughs> that's 
That's my order of pizza. <laughs> See, I I can't do Papa John's because of some political reasons, but because he's a That's real gross. asshole. But I love me a thin crust Papa John's pepperoni pizza with their garlic butter. Oh, yum. And I no, hate pizza, I, and I like that pizza. Yeah, no, I had a friend in elementary school who they, that's the pizza that they would order, like, when they would order pizza, and I was like, this pizza's gross. Like, it's not <laughs> even good. And then my cousin, one of my cousins always loved round table, and I can't stand it. I'm like, this pizza's terrible. I don't think I've ever like, had round table pizza in my life. I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> Well, I don't eat pizza very often anyway. But. I was going to say, you don't really like pizza. That's so. true. That is so So you don't true. get to judge my pizza rankings. Okay, I won't judge your pizza rankings except for me and Ed's because that tastes like you licked the floor off dirt, dirty floor. I did not. Your husband would agree with me. He's actually coming around and he no! likes No! John! <laughs> He he likes their thick crust though, more than he would like their thin crust. But I like their regular crust because it's like, it's thin. It's like oven, yeah, cooked pizza. Like it's the brick oven. Like it's crispy and nice and delicious. Oh, those were pizza places that I would also put above, like Pyology and Blaze and yeah. Mountain Mike's would all go above Pizza Hut. Just a whole yeah. bunch. Yeah, you're you're really against the Pizza Hut, man. They're greasy. And they are very good. greasy. Very greasy. I like how we're talking about Kentucky Fried Kentucky songs. This is the rant we're on. Hey, we just recorded an intro for the episode. <laughs> like, what is, what is happening? I don't know. All right, now that we went off this huge tangent. <laughs> um, we always go on food tangents. I know. That's okay. I know, about k- Kentucky things. But let's get into Kentucky. So what case do you have for us today? All right, so I'm going to be doing something a little bit different tonight. I'm actually going to be sharing with you guys about how the Domestic Violence uh, Prevention Coordinating Council began in Louisville, Kentucky. So I think I pronounced okay. it the way they did. I try. I try, Kentucky. Sorry if I don't. But I know we say Louisville. I think that's how they... But they say, like, Louisville. Louisville. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I've heard that okay. before. Because, yeah, we don't pronounce it correctly. We don't pronounce it that way. <laughs> so I decided to pick this topic because as the world is facing a pandemic of COVID, obviously, there's another pandemic that's growing right alongside that, and that would be the numbers of domestic violence incidents all around the world are increasing. So I actually was reading an article that was talking about, what was it, I think it was like 2013 when the Ebola virus happened, and so a lot of, they did a study in some African countries and the and how domestic violence increased there and so they're seeing parallels when it comes to covid and that's probably because a lot of people are staying home aren't able to go anywhere and so tensions Mm -hmm. are rising and mounting and so a lot of more times the only way the victim of domestic violence can get help is when it happens and they call the police so there's a lot more reported police incidents uh, rising in domestic violence So I just want to warn everyone before I tell the story of I'm actually be telling two stories of two different women who were murdered due to domestic violence. 
that this could be triggering for some because domestic violence is a really hard topic to talk about. Yeah. As is murder all the time, but like just domestic violence yeah, really gets to me. I feel like more people are touched by domestic violence than murder on a oh, regular yeah. basis. Ab- absolutely. Because I think it's what one in like one in five girls will fall into a domestic violence relationship or something like yeah. that. I don't know how old that statistic is, but Yeah. So it's yeah, it's pretty prevalent. So I'm going to tell you guys about the first a couple I'm going to be talking about are Pam and Bob Fortney. So Pam and Bob have been married for 16 years by the time the summer of 1990 came around. Pam was an art teacher at Moore High School. She was loved by her students and the rest of the faculty there. She was the person at her job. So every job has this person where they collect all the money for like to buy birthday presents or flowers for if somebody got ill or if somebody in your their family passed away, she would be the one responsible for getting like the condolence card and flowers and everything. So she was that thoughtful person that I think every job has that person. I'm not that person for my job, but <laughs> <laughs> but, the, but we know that person. But we do know that person. So I'm not thoughtful at all. No. I'm just so so Pam was that person, just wonderful. She was very well loved. However, she was very private about her personal life. So she didn't talk about her personal life at work at all. Bob was also a teacher. He taught social studies at a different high school than his wife. Bob was very well liked by his students. He was a sponsor of the chess club. And then he also oversaw student council. And he would be, he was well known for making time for any student that needed help after school. He would always be willing to stay. By the summer of 1990, however, their marriage was coming to an end. And, and actually on August 2nd, Pam announced that she wanted a divorce. According to Pam's, Pam's family, they stated that there had been abuse early on in their relationship. However, once Pam stated that she wanted the divorce... The abuse started to escalate. So, Hmm. I mean, which I think happens a lot of times when you hear about women trying to escape domestic violence incidents. It can get a little bit worse. Yeah. So by the time Pam filed for divorce on August 30th, she was able to actually get a restraining order against Bob. Pam reported uh, in her divorce filings that he had been that Bob had been physically and emotionally abusive to her more than a dozen times. Pam's sister, Pat, shared in an article that I read that Pam always knew that Bob was dangerous, and but she was becoming increasingly absolutely terrified of him. So he wow. was just, yeah, he was just kind of really amping up in this short period of time. She would, yeah. so Pam would often state that she was afraid that he was going to kill her. So that's never good. Yeah. That's <laughs> when you got to go. <laughs> So during this time, Bob's mental health began to deteriorate and Mm -hmm. he started to actually see a psychiatrist because of this. And I think that that part played into the divorce and why she was leaving is that right before that August 2nd, it sounded like he really just wasn't mentally stable enough and he was getting just really combative with her. Yeah. So after she got the restraining order, this did not stop him from continuing trying to see Pam, which I know we work with a lot of families that have domestic violence in their history and past. And that sounds about right. 
So yeah. Also, I'm not a huge fan of restraining orders. Like, uh-huh. I feel like all they do is tell them where you are, mm-hmm. and it's just creating more of a dangerous situation sometimes rather than helping. Yeah. I can see that, but it also gives you some legal foot to stand on if they get close to you, whereas if you don't have that, if they're, like, stalking you or being around you, that's not against the law, just putting their hands on you. So this gives them a little more recourse, but I can totally see what you're saying. So in August, he continued to drive over to, I'm going to call it Pam's house, but it is actually the house that Bob and Pam lived in while they were married, but I'm still, I'm going to call it Pam's house. He would end up breaking the windows and coming inside. So the police were called five separate times for domestic disputes during that time when she filed for like that August 2nd and him separating and August 30th when they filed for divorce. On Labor Day weekend, Bob ended up actually following Pam and her family to a relative's home out of city. So they like they kind of went a little travel in there. And when he got to the home... He got out of his car and he threatened to kill himself in front of everyone. So I actually forgot to mention this at the beginning. Pam and Bob have a three-year-old daughter named Paige. I don't know where she was during this altercation, but like the whole family saw it. So like he was just kind of had flipped his lid. So the cops were called and Bob ended up being arrested for intoxication and disorderly conduct. The police also stated that they were going to place him on, on on an involuntary hold. So in California, we call that a 5150. I know that's not called that everywhere, but I think it's a pretty well-known term just because there's a country song called 5150, which I hated when it came out because a 5150 is a really serious thing because it's somebody that is either going to be yeah. a harm to themselves or some or others due to some mental illness that's going on. And this song was making fun of, the, well, it was like 5150, yeah. better call the po-po. And it's like just a guy going crazy for a girl. And so I just did not like that. But <laughs> I digress. Yeah, just don't make light opinion. of that. <laughs> So I don't know, maybe Dirk Bentley didn't know really what a 5150 was, but I've dealt with a lot of clients that have been placed on 5150 holds and it's a really serious thing. So not to make light of it. So Bob had a choice kind of either be involuntarily committed or he could commit himself voluntarily. So he chose to commit himself voluntarily and went into a 10 day program. When he was released on September 12th, the first thing he did was go to Pam's house. So when she answered... Mm, Of course he did. I I know, right? I'm like, this man ain't learned nothing. So, (laughs) not shocking. So he's like, I'm out of the hospital. I'm going to go see my wife. So Mm -hmm. he, he went to the door and knocked on it. When Pam came and answered the door, he ended up smacking her in the face and threatened to beat her with a hammer he had. Oh my god. I know. Ended up pulling out the phone cord off the wall like it was hanging up because this is the 1990s so cell phones know. Yeah. So it's just just the landline so he ended up pulling out the phone call off the wall and would lock her inside. Then he would knock her like not down the stairs but onto the stairs and he started choking her. And he did this all in front of their three-year-old daughter. Uh. Which... Oh, that just breaks my heart for this little girl. And domestic violence it can be really terrible for little children and their mental health and their yeah. brain development. So 
not good. Not saying that the page isn't doing well. I don't know. I didn't follow up on that. But that is something like just, ugh, children involved yeah. always gets me. So he ended up staying there for four hours and only left once she agreed to consider reconciliation. So, oh my God. I mean, at that point, I'm sure she's like, yeah, yeah, we'll get back together. It's fine. Yes, fine. You, we just leave. You know? Yeah, you just got to get him out of the house. <laughs> exactly. So after he left, Pam called the police and she ended up going to the local women's abuse shelter. So taking her steps on what she should do. During this time, both Bob and Pam continued to work. So Pam's students and the other teachers around her didn't know that any of this was going on in her life. Some just stated that they knew that she was getting divorced, but didn't know anything about the abuse. However, Bob, on the other hand, was sharing all sorts of stuff with his students, which I'm just like, oh my gosh. Oh my god! But also, you think she would have to... Like, if she has a restraining order against him, you think she would have to tell the school because Mm. they need to know, like, you could be putting the students at harm at that point. I agree. It's really important. But, like, I know it's personal, but still, like, at least let the office staff know, like, Mm -hmm. hey, my husband's not allowed anywhere near me. Like, do not. I don't know. I feel like I would tell the other teachers, too. Be like, if my husband tries to tell you that he needs to see me. Yeah. It's definitely a safety You just can't let him in there. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So it didn't seem like Pam's work knew. Bob, so I was telling you, like, was talking all sorts of shit to his students. They reported that he appeared to be really different that fall semester. He would often drift off in class and not be willing to teach, having them do writing assignments instead. So he wasn't really involved in class a lot of times. He would often share about his divorce and the and he would state that, that he was having a custody battle with his wife. He also told his students that his house had burned down and his car had exploded. But he also mentioned that he was in therapy. So, you know, all normal things. How are the parents of these students not being like, what the hell? Like, what did you learn in English class, little Timmy? Oh, well, I learned that my teacher's house burned down and he's getting a divorce, but it's okay because he's in therapy. Yeah. Well, these were high school. So like high school students, so a little different than like a little kid, but it was like. Yeah, but I feel like I would still, if that oh, was my high school teacher, I would go home and be like, uh, so this is what my high school teacher talked about in oh, this yeah. class. And I, like, I think he's crazy. I would, I would tell somebody. I totally would do, but I don't know. They interviewed a couple of juniors and seniors from his class for in the articles I read. And so they were like, well, he told us that he was in therapy. So we'd assumed that he was getting the help he needed. So it was good. All good. And I'm still like, he no, still but- shouldn't be talking about that in class. No, it's so weird. He even one time joked with a couple of students about like popping his wife in the nose. And so they thought he was joking, but obviously he wasn't. Yeah. Oh, my God. His principal also seemed to know that he was getting a divorce, but didn't see anything concerning about him. And which which my thought is he was in school. So they talked about how he missed like a week of school in September. And I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, because he was in a like a psychiatric hospital like and they didn't know like it's very confusing because I would be concerned about that and his mental stability and then I guess maybe the students didn't talk to the principal about him kind of going off the rails and Mm. weird so back to the timeline of Bob and Pam so on September 28th 
Bob would break into Pam's house yet again. And this time he ended up threatening her with a pistol, asking Pam if she wanted him to do it right there and then, which I'm guessing the do it is either kill himself or kill her. I don't know. Uh, She ended up returning to the women's abuse shelter and they would photograph her bruises and then she was working on pressing criminal charges against Bob. Yeah, how is he not arrested if he's making threats and he beat the hell out of her? Come on, get your shit together, Kentucky. I know. So on October 2nd, Pam tried and failed to get a criminal warrant against Bob. So get him arrested for the abuse. The district judge ended up denying the warrant when they asked her later on why, like her reasoning for denying the warrant. She stated that she didn't remember the case. However, it was most likely due to the fact that it was recommended by the county's attorney's office to like not do give the warrant. So she was like passing the buck on kind of the prosecutor, I guess. However, the fuck? when all this happened, they ended up interviewing the district attorney. Mm-hmm. So the county's attorney and they asked them about the case and they stated that they had actually never reviewed the warrant and that they had not given any recommendations of not about the warrant being filed. So I don't know what happened. Somebody dropped the ball. But after reviewing it, they stated that they would have actually ha- asked for the warrant to be placed against Bob. So he should have been arrested. But it didn't happen. A lot of good that did. Yeah, so a whole lot. Like, obviously, this restraining order is doing jack shit because he's not getting arrested for breaking the restraining order. Yeah, and <laughs> it's did. very easy to say, oh, well, at, like, after the fact of whatever is going to happen, like, to be like, oh, yeah, we mm-hmm. totally would have done that. It's like, but you didn't yeah, when you had you the opportunity. Exactly. What does that matter? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So by November, Pam actually agreed to drop the restraining order against Bob. Now, we see this. I mean, this happens. Yeah. He apparently he promised to make changes and be less violent. And so she believed him. And so she dropped the restraining order. However, he didn't change. And she, she ended up again requesting an order of protection after four separate incidents in November. This uh, restraining order would be granted on December 10th. By this time, however, Bob had stopped taking the medicine. So remember, he was prescribed in the early summer mm-hmm. psychiatric medication. It does not tell me what there was no nobody disclosed like what he was being treated for, like what mental illness he was ha- he was being treated for. Just that mm-hmm. a psychiatrist was treating him and that he was prescribed medication and he stopped taking that his brother stated that the reason he shared that he had stopped taking it was that it was making him on edge and jittery and he just didn't kind of feel himself so he just decided not to take it by the end of december all of the reasoning for it is that they don't feel themselves like you got to give medications time and i'm sure like the medications that we had then probably weren't as good as what we have now i'm sure you have to let stuff regulate and i think that's what's the hardest for when people when it's so severe because obviously they don't feel like themselves because their normal self is mm-hmm. this frantic like thing you know what i mean like yeah. it's different and so i don't know yeah so by the end of december pam ended up moving into an unlisted apartment with her sister so she kind of was hiding out so she Good. so he had no idea where apparently he was supposed to not have any idea where she lived nothing 
So on January... Did she still have a restraining order, though? Yes. So her restraining order was regranted on December 10th. So she did have a restraining yes. order. But if it was regranted, they would have put that new address on it. So that's the, how he would have But she didn't either. move until... I don't... She didn't move until the end of December. So the restraining order oh, okay. had already been for issued. for an older address. Yeah. So nice. had been issued. And then she ended up moving to an unlisted. So her phone number wasn't listed. Her apartment wasn't listed. She wasn't on any of the bills. Just trying to be safe. Mm-hmm. So on January 2nd, 1991, they actually ha- finally had their first like appointments towards getting a divorce. And this was an appointment to meet with a court-appointed therapist. And they met with this therapist to see if they would be able to save their marriage. So I guess, I don't know if this is a, I've never been divorced, so I don't know. If this is a thing that every person that gets goes through a divorce has to do, is this a Kentucky thing? Is it still going on nowadays? But apparently you had to be with a therapist and the therapist had to give a recommendation on whether or not it's okay for them to separate or not. That doesn't sound like an every state thing. That sounds like maybe a Kentucky thing or maybe even the city thing. I don't know. I I have no idea. I think that's pretty strange. Yeah. However, (laughs) this therapist cited disturbing factors in the relationship and stated she recommended that the divorce proceed. So I guess it's a good thing. On January 10th at around 645 in the morning, Bob left his apartment He was sharing with his brother, Tom, and as he was leaving, he kind of looked over to Tom and told his brother, pray for me, and then walked out the door. (laughs) Now, Oh, shit. Yeah, if I was Tom, I'd be like, what the fuck? And a side note, Tom is also, like in one of the articles I read, had shared that over the last six months, so or, you know, since like July, August and on, that... Bob had continually talked about killing Pam. And so, mm-hmm. to him. So, I'm like, uh. Oh, my god! If that's what he would tell me, if I was his sibling, I would be like, whoa, wait, what? But, whatever. So, around the same time that Bob was leaving his apartment, Pam was taking her daughter and dropping her off at daycare. Pam, you see, had a very predictable routine. Oh, no, never. Even if you're not in a domestic violence relationship, you should never have predictable routines. Take different routes to work. Take different routes home because people can stalk you that way. Like, even if it's not someone you're in a relationship, like, people will stalk and learn your routine. Even people try to break into your house will memorize your routine so Mm -hmm. they know when you're not going to be home. Yeah. Do different things if you can. Yeah. But, I mean, also the problem with this is that he, Bob obviously knew because he, she was taking their daughter to daycare Mm -hmm. or preschool or whatever it was. And so, like, he obviously knew when that happened and he knew exactly where it was because it's his daughter. So Bob ended up following her car. So she dropped off her her daughter Paige and got back into her car. And Bob followed her after she left the daycare. And he would end up running her car off the road. You know. Oh, my God. So Pam had to crawl out the passenger side of the car. And she got up and started to run down the road. She got about 30 feet from her car when Bob took out his sawed-off shotgun and shot her six times. Oh, my God. Bob then laid down on top of Pam's body and ended up shooting himself in the head. Wow. Yeah. So he ended up dying later that night in the hospital. 
this rocked the community because it was like two well-liked teachers like it was mm-hmm. a murder suicide bob's co- co-workers didn't see it coming however pam's family was fucking furious because she had done everything to protect herself and they saw it was a systematic failure so the system had totally failed to protect mm-hmm. her which is kind of true Mm-hmm. With this case being so in the public eye, one woman, her name was Roth, who was working at a brand new office. The off- It was called the Office for Women. Now, I didn't look into what the Office for Women did, but I think that's a really generic name for something. <laughs> like, okay. But if it's something for like domestic violence. It was. I don't think it was. Because I was like, then you'd want to keep a yeah. generic name. This was, it was, all it stated in some of the articles I read was that the office for women was just to help women improve their lives. So very, like, that's so generic, but whatever. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so she ended up, like, looking into this case and she told her boss that why are we working to improve women's lives if we can't even keep them alive to work on that improvement. So she was just like, Mm -hmm. what the fuck happened in this case? So she started doing the research and she kind of was like delving into Pam's murder. And she found that no agency thought they had dropped the ball. So. Of course they didn't. Everyone's going to just say it's everyone else. Exactly. So they all started pointing fingers like, no, I did. So like the women's shelter was like, no, we helped her try to get the warrant to get him arrested. It should have worked. It didn't work. The judge mm-hmm. was all like, oh, well, the district attorney told me not to give the warrant. The district attorney was like, oh, well, we blah, 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 blah. The police were like, blah, 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 blah. So <laughs> it was just like, what the heck? So. She ended up writing a a full report about how the system had failed Pam. And Uh when Louisville, the city kind of was looking into this, they were like, no, we need to do make some changes. So in Uh 1996, they they turned what she had started working with this case into the Domestic Violence Coordinating Council. So this council has judges, police, prosecutors, legislators, schools, medical professionals. It's a whole bunch of people that review domestic violence murder cases in the city. Okay. And then they see what happened, what agencies had been involved prior to the murder. If there wasn't any, then okay. But if there was some, like who had touched this case, how did it get this way and how did they fail her? Or him. It can be a him too. I said her. But it can happen to yeah. It it can happen to anybody. And then how can they make changes to improve upon? Hmm. The kind of the really cool thing about this council is there are other councils like this in other cities across America, but they're one of the only ones that doesn't have to wait for a trial to occur. So this one obviously ended in a murder-suicide, so there wasn't a trial. But if there is a trial, they don't have to wait until the case is closed to start investigating to improve. The second the murder happens, they can go in and start looking and get all of this information on the case, whereas everybody else, it could take years to get the information. Mm -hmm. So there's kind of a difference. So this leads us to today. So 25 years later, after the council was officially founded and a case that this council actually just reviewed this year, and they found some glaring infractions had happened. So I'm going to tell you, it's kind of a quick case because it's still ongoing and there isn't a lot of information Mm -hmm. about it. But this case is about Amanda Berry. So according to Amanda Berry's social media, she started dating a man named William Sloss, in the early part of 2019. 
On December 26th, so the day after Christmas, the Louisville police responded to a call made by Amanda. So when she called, she stated that her boyfriend wouldn't let her leave her, the house. So he was kind of keeping her captive. Mm-hmm. When officers Holman and Luckett arrived on the scene, Amanda told them that Sloss had hit her, held her in the house against her will, and then ended up chasing her down the street. And to tack that on, he also ended up taking her phone away. So these two police officers didn't arrest Sloss for the domestic violence. They didn't even file a report on the incident, which, according to Louisville, is against the law. So which because it's required that if there's a domestic violence allegation that the form JC3, which is allegations of domestic violence and abuse that's reported to a police officer. So it kind of puts it and file so like you can't just walk away you have to have like kind of a paper trail mm-hmm. they just apparently listened to her story and then took off that was it did nothing so what the hell? i know leaving amanda with her violent boyfriend wow yeah so neighbors remember the last time seeing amanda was a couple weeks after that one night sloss and actually ended up locking amanda out of their house and forced her to sleep on a couch outside. And this was in January. So I don't know how cold Kentucky oh gets, but I'm sure it's not warm. So she had no yeah. blankets, no shoes on, no nothing. And I think the neighbors, at least from my, like, just from articles I read, not nosy, but they were very observant people. <laughs> so mm-hmm. so they noticed this woman <laughs> outside. <laughs> Um, so until, so they kind of noticed that she was sleeping outside with nothing, which can I also say, if I saw this, I would get involved a little bit. Like I would be like, Hey, if this is how he's going to be like, come into my house, you can sleep in my house. Let's, let's do something about this. Like, but that's a social worker. Yeah. Also too, (laughs) at the very least be like, Hey, do you need a blanket or do you need me to call somebody for you? Or like. Do you need somewhere else to stay? Like, I can drive you to a shelter or, like, if you don't feel comfortable. Because, like, obviously, I don't want to be, like, a creepy stranger being, like, you could stay in my house. Like, yeah. I would just be, like, do you need but me to drive you somewhere? Like I can neighbors- call you an Uber. Yeah. The neighbors mm-hmm. seem to know her and, like, be friendly with her. So, it's not, like. Oh. Yeah. yeah. So, I don't know. I Whatever. <laughs> I'm not going to judge the neighbors for not being involved. <laughs> but. Yeah. Plus, if they if they knew what was going on, like if they knew he was violent, like would you really want him? Because obviously he knows where you live. Yeah, I don't know. And the cops aren't doing anything for her. Like, what makes you think they're gonna protect you from yeah. your crazy ass neighbor? You That's know what true. I mean? I, but I mean, my mom gets involved if she's my I'm yeah. I've learned from my mama, and my mom like if she sees a parent talking wrong to a child or anything she will go up and tell them to their face <laughs> like <Yeah>. like no <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like i'm just like oh man so i've learned that from my mom so i sometimes will do that too i had a neighbor who was having a dom- a domestic argument in, out front because they were getting divorced and their kid their three-year-old kid was just sitting in the car and here they are mm-hmm. screaming and cussing at each other and so I walked up to him and I was, I was like, I was like, um, just so you know, uh, I work for Child Protective Services and what you're doing right now is not appropriate. You need to shut this down and somebody needs to take care of your son. This arguing in front of him is not okay. And then I, because I was walking my dog. Mm-hmm. So I just couldn't walk away. Like, I can't walk away from that. So I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. This is really hard for me because I'm just like, what the 
fuck are these neighbors doing? I just, I can't. But like you said, I mean, I think it's kind of this idea of, oh, that's somebody else's business. You stay out of it. You don't get involved in people's problems and like... I don't know. It's just like an old-fashioned kind of mindset. It of is. Like, we just it is. leave I'm, them be. Yeah. Yeah. It is. You're right. But. Yeah. So he did finally let her come inside. So <laughs> a neighbor who had pre. Uh, so some neighbors apparently had previously tried to help Amanda leave. So they had gotten. They had been involved previously with this relationship. Mm-hmm. So one neighbor. It didn't say her name. I'm guessing it's a her. It didn't even say if it was a guy or a girl. I'm just assuming it was a girl. <laughs> so so she's, he or she stated that they had tried to help Amanda leave the relationship, shared that after that night of Amanda being out, she became increasingly concerned because she hadn't seen Amanda for days. So normally mm-hmm. Amanda, she would see her coming and going and everything. But since that locked out event, nothing. So apparently this neighbor, and I'm going to give kudos to this neighbor. I don't know about the being letting her be locked out, but... <laughs> This is ballsy. So the neighbor went up to the house, knocked on the door, and asked if she could take a look around. (laughs) So I don't know if I would be that ballsy to do that. I'd be calling the cops. I wouldn't be. (laughs) Well, I don't know. I feel like I would come up with more of a ruse. I'd be like, oh, hey, you scared your dogs. I feel like I would be more of like, oh, hey, like me and her had an appointment like we were supposed to go get our nails done or we were supposed to do something she said to wait for her like if she didn't come like i'll just wait here for her like yeah. or yeah if you i need just to go see get her? her yeah do you want to grab her i'll be right here can you bring her to me because yeah. we had something or you know what i mean i would come up with a i wouldn't just be like i need to take a look around like, <laughs> I, <know. laughs> I don't trust your ass <laughs> yeah i know so when sloss wouldn't let her come into the house she became even more suspicious so things yeah, would just keep no going shit. and building and building then she apparently noticed that all of amanda's things were out in the trash outside the house so he just oh, threw away all gosh. of amanda's things so at this point apparently another neighbor asked sloss point blank where was amanda where is she? What's going mm-hmm. on? So Sloss rep- replied to this person, I got rid of her. And that was it. So oh, none of these neighbors called the cops at this. Like, what the fuck? Like, call the cops. <laughs> Something. Report her missing. I don't know. But anyway, Amanda's family finally reported her missing because they were like, no. And yeah. then another report was made to the police stating that Sloss, it doesn't say what who this friend is, but apparently had called a friend on the phone and shared that Amanda was dead and that he had placed her body in a plastic storage tote and put it in the basement of his house and then ended up covering it with trash. Oh, my God. So after Amanda's family had reported her missing and then this, mm-hmm. I don't know, like somebody just sharing this information, the police actually ended up finally going to the house on January 31st of 2020 and they discovered Amanda's body just as Sloth's friend had described it over the phone. So the cause of death has not been released but it was stated that Amanda's body had been there for quite some time which so they don't have we don't know how no yet cause of death or 
really date of death. One article mm-hmm. I read did say that her the day she died was January 30th, but I don't think that's true if they found her on January 31st and said her body had been in there a while, because I don't think one yeah. day is a while. No. Sloss was arrested for the murder, and he, got, he was arrested for the murder and I think des- desecration of a corpse. So I don't know what he did to this. I mean, I don't know if that's just because he stuffed it and hit it. I don't know. Yeah. And is currently awaiting trial. Now, of course, that part, Amanda telling her story and, you know, uh, domestic violence is important. You know, we we deserve to, her to be talked about and, you know, just her story told. However, the counsel that I mentioned ended up reviewing this case. So right after her body was found, they looked at where could have Amanda and Sloss possibly come into contact with the system. And could this murder have been prevented? That is when they came across Amanda's call in December to the police department. And it was found that these two officers in December did not follow protocol. They did not use all, this is, this is exactly how it was stated, they did not use all reasonable means to provide assistance to Amanda. So this, and this is from the police's investigation of the two officers. So the police stated okay. that. Instead, you know, they just took off. So on May 22nd of this year, Louisville Police Department ended up filing charges against Officer Holman and Luckett with failure of law enforcement to provide assistance. Now, this is only a misdemeanor offense, (laughs) but I mean, but they were put on administrative leave and were placed under arrest. And this is the first time in 25 years that since the fatality review has started that there was actually criminal charges brought based just on the information generated from the review. Wow. So not that this is not that this has fixed all of the problems and it won't end domestic violence, but at least there's some accountability in Louisville. So I definitely the reason why I wanted to share this is like this is really important and I think everywhere needs to have this sort of accountability and people reviewing how everything is going on cases. Because mm-hmm. it shouldn't be ignored. And if people do drop the ball, there needs to be some sort of change or, you know, I, I don't even mean necessarily arresting. I mean, this is great because they obviously didn't do what they were supposed to be doing and they needed to be arrested for that. But we need to hold our systems accountable to help the people that they're supposed to be helping. Because if there's no checks and balances, yeah. balances there's not going to be any change. And I think we're seeing that mm-hmm. time and time again. I mean, you can do it with the Black Lives Matter movement and police brutality and everything else, but domestic violence, too. I mean, there's so many opportunities to support these women, and it, a lot of times they get they go, like, falling through the cracks. And so this is what happened mm-hmm. to Amanda. This is what happened to Pam. And, I mean, sadly, it's still 25 years, and there's still things like this happening, but there's yeah. at least some sort of change trying to happen. Yeah. All right. Well, that was good. Thank you for sharing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So what's your story for this week? So my story this week is about Katie Autry. So Melissa K. Autry, or as she was called, Katie, was born on June 10th, 1984 in Rosine, Kentucky, which is a small community in Ohio County. And I say small community, like 
I think as of 2000, the population of this unincorporated town was 41. So it is teeny tiny. Yeah. Katie was a happy child and always managed to put a smile on others' faces. She had a younger sister named Lisa, and along with their cousin Barbie, they dreamed of opening a salon when they were children. So they used to play around, like, someone would cut hair and someone would do nails, and, like, they just, they were all really close in age, so they just grew up really close. When Katie was about seven, her mom became sick and unable to care for her and Lisa. They went into foster care and lived with the Inman family for the rest of their childhood. The Inmans provided a good home for the girls and helped the girls maintain relationships with their birth family. So overall, like it was a pretty good foster experience. That's good. So... Katie was a cheerleader in school and was actively involved in all sorts of school activities. So she was just really outgoing, really friendly. She was a part of everything. When she graduated, she decided to attend Western Kentucky University in Bowling Green due to its proximity to her family. She was very family-oriented, so she didn't want to go too far away for school. She moved into Hugh Poland Hall as a freshman and instantly began making friends. She and her roommate, Danica, soon became inseparable. On May 3rd, 2003, as their freshman year was coming to a close, the girls decided to head out to a fraternity party at Pi Kappa Alpha. And apparently this was the weekend of the Kentucky Derby, which they... Cause a lot of my information I got from a episode called Southern Gothic. It's a show on ID. Hmm. And so they did an episode on this and they made it a point, the detectives that were interviewed, to say, like, if you're a fan of the Kentucky Derby, imagine how big of a deal it is when you're in Kentucky. Oh, I bet it's huge. So apparently it's like a big thing. Which I've actually never watched the Kentucky Derby, so I don't know. It's the one where everyone gets dressed up in the big hats, right? And yes. And the horses. Yes. So yeah, so this fraternity, apparently there were parties all weekend long, so they decided to go to this fraternity. And it was apparently a pretty low-key event, not too many people, Everyone, there was no drinking in the house, so it seemed like people were mainly drinking outside, and everyone was just kind of hanging out. So, the girls were hanging out when Katie spotted her boyfriend, Maurice, who was a football player at WKU. She spotted Maurice talking to another girl, and the two began to argue at the party. Also, they had both been drinking a little bit, so I think that escalated the argument. Because apparently, according to her, I believe it was her cousin, shared that she felt like she was very much in love with him, but he was apparently looking for something a little more casual. So Mm. apparently he was dating other girls. Very college. (laughs) Yeah. And so... After the argument broke up, Katie decided to go home. It didn't say whether, because they had a reenactment, but I don't know how accurate the reenactment is of someone breaking it up and then she just left or if she just decided, like, I'm out. She decided to head home and the fraternity had their pledges acting as designated drivers for the night. And so they led her, her friend Danica led her to the truck of a guy, a pledge named Ryan and said, okay, make sure she gets home safe. So Ryan took her, which, okay not trying to blame Danica at all. No. But if my friend was drunk, just got in an argument with her boyfriend, I'm not putting her in some random fraternity dude's truck. Even if I knew that random fraternity dude, my ass is going home. If I came to the party with you, I'm leaving the party with you. Like, yeah. I'm not gonna let you 
go by yourself. So got her in the truck. And so around 1, 1 1.30 in the morning, Katie was spotted by the front desk person of her dorm. I guess it was the kind of dorm where there would be like a person that you would kind of check in that would like notice you or like at least check in kind of when everyone was in I didn't have that in my college dorm so I don't know what that's like (laughs) but I guess there was someone always I don't know if they were always there or if they just happened to still be there when Katie came in we had resident advisors yeah like we had an RA too but this sounded like somebody was like at a debt like somebody was checking them in almost like a door person I don't know like it was interesting because I had an RA like we had yeah ours did rounds not not, I mean, you didn't have to be in your dorm, like, at a certain time, but they did rounds to make sure that you didn't have boys in your room, because you weren't allowed that. Oh, <laughs> so. Yeah, no, mine didn't care. But, no, I, I want to say, yeah, no, she was just there. I don't even remember. She was involved in a lot of stuff, so I'm like, how are you in RA? Like, you're never really here. <laughs> like, you're always doing your own thing, which is fine. Didn't matter. But, yeah, no, this, I imagine, like trying to think like sometimes if you watch movies or like tv show they have this like person in the dorm that's just like around all the time like right there so i think that was what was going on so around 2 30 in the morning danica called katie to check in on her since she was spending the night with a friend away from the dorm because the two were roommates and so she wasn't back so katie answered the phone and said she had been sick or was feeling sick i wasn't really clear on that but that she was laying down in bed Danica heard someone else come in the room and Katie said that a guy had walked into the room and that she didn't know who it was and that she was scared and Danica asked to speak to the person who walked in and Katie handed him them the phone she said who is this and the guy said he was the person who drove her home and not to worry he was going to take good care of her Danica didn't recognize the voice because she had talked to Ryan at the party, so she didn't recognize that that was his voice. And just before the call ended, she heard a second male voice in the room. Okay. God, I'd be shitting my pants. Not be mad at Danica. I would be calling the police and driving my ass back to the door. Whoever's house I'm staying, I'm like, we need to go because something's going on with my roommate. Like, there's two random dudes in the apartment. Like, she's drunk. She just said she was sick. She told me she was scared. I'm calling everybody. I'm calling the RA. I'm calling the police. I'm calling Mm -hmm. campus security. Like, we got to figure out what's going on. I understand that she was also a freshman so she was very young yeah i'm not trying to judge or blame anything but i'm like oh like it's just what like and it didn't say like whether the phone hung up or like if she hung up and just said okay and like got off i don't know but either way i was just like what like if that was my friend or like even if that was my college roommate who i'm not really friends with anymore or even really much at that time like i still would have been like okay no i need to go check on her or figure out what's going on. But anyway, she didn't. The call ended. So on May 4th, which is the next day, around 4 a.m., the fire department responded to a call at WKU in the Poland Hall dorms. As they arrived, students were being evacuated and the fire department was greeted by campus police. As one of the RAs was knocking on the doors to make sure that all of the students had been evacuated, They came across room 214, Katie and Danica's room, and it was locked. So smoke seemed to be coming out of the room and there was no answer inside. So the RA got campus security or campus police, whoever had the key to the rooms. And so they opened the door, but there was so much thick smoke that they couldn't 
really see or get into the room safely. So that's when they ran outside and told the fire department. But they did say that it seemed like the fire was out. If it did originate in that room, they couldn't find any evidence of the fire. So firefighters headed upstairs to investigate and they looked around and saw that a wet towel had been tied over the sprinkler, like the, I don't know what the, like the fire sprinklers, I guess. And and that there was a pile of clothes and sheets on one of the beds that seemed to be the source of the fire. Suddenly, one of the firefighters noticed movement and realized that someone was under all of the stuff on that bed. Katie had suffered third-degree burns pretty much all over her chest area, her pubic area, her face, and her arms. And she had what looked like pencil-sized puncture wounds to her neck. I know, and she's still breathing. Jeez. Her... Face had been wrapped in a nylon stocking and she was immediately carried out as they called for a medic. As they lay her out on the lawn and gave her oxygen, one of the firefighters turned back towards the crowd of students because all the students were like, what's going on? Like, Mm -hmm. they just got woken up at 4 a.m. And he told them, if you believe in prayer, now is the time to start praying because they were just trying to keep her alive as the medics came. As Katie was loaded into the ambulance... She told one of the first responders to, she just kept repeating, take me home, take me home. Investigators immediately got to work in the room trying to piece together what had happened. They found a can of hairspray on the ground that Mm. they believe had been used as an accelerant and noticed that only Katie's side of the room seemed to be a target. So it wasn't something like someone was just wildly trying to burn the whole room. It was really just focused on her side. Also too, when they were looking, they realized that a lot of the evidence was going to be gone or damaged because the sprinkler had gone off in the room. Mm -hmm. Because despite tying the wet towel there, luckily there was enough water that got out of the sprinkler that it was able to put the fire out before the fire department showed up. So it kind of wet a lot of stuff in the room. Since her roommate wasn't in the room and her side didn't seem to be targeted, police immediately started searching for her roommate. And eventually they got in contact i think they talked to one of the students outside who said yeah i know where she's at let me get her and they were able to reach her there when danica arrived for questioning she told them all about the party and the strange call and how the voice on the phone didn't sound like it had belonged to ryan the pledge that had drove katie home police questioned ryan and he soon admitted that his friend steven souls was also in the truck when katie got in but Danica wouldn't have been able to see him because apparently he was sleeping in the truck. Steven Souls, he was 20 years old. He was a friend from Ryan's, I think, high school days or his hometown. He was just a friend from not the school who had come to check out the party with him but had fallen asleep in the truck, I believe, after drinking too much. It didn't really say. As Katie got in the car, Souls woke up and the three of them talked on the way back to Katie's dorm. And it was just kind of friendly banter. I guess during the drive, Souls was starting to get nauseous or a little sick. And so she was kind of playfully like teasing him. As they arrived near Katie's dorm, she exited the truck. She told the boys goodnight and she said to Souls, I hope you feel better, sick boy. So she was just joking around with him as she left. Mm -hmm. Ryan said she walked toward her dorm and they drove off. As they drove away, Soul said he wasn't feeling well and told Ryan to pull over and just drop him off there. And I didn't say how far away they were from the dorm, but he hadn't been driving very much when he said, just leave me here. Ryan did, and he drove away. Which I'm like, you didn't figure out what he was doing? Also, what is with these college students not taking care of their sick friends? Yeah. (laughs) Take care of your sick friends. (laughs) 
So as police began to search for souls, they looked into his background and found a few prior offenses, but nothing like a violent crime. I think it was more like, I don't know if it was like robbery or anything else. It didn't really tell me what the charges were. They just weren't violent crimes. Police couldn't immediately find him for questioning, so they reached out to, they went to his father's house, and they ended up talking to his brother that was there, and they made it a point to say that was a Kentucky thing, like, they're trying to put on the southern charm and, Mm -hmm. like, kind of old-fashioned and do that, and I'm like, I feel like the police would kind of talk to the parents regardless, but okay, if you want to claim that as a southern thing, you do you, Kentucky. (laughs) So (laughs) Sounds like they're just going to family members to find him. That's something that all cops do. I don't know if that was a Southern charm thing, yeah. but okay. well, and also you go to like people you think would know where he's at. Like, yeah, that's common. I hope common police work. Yeah, if not, that's remiss. <laughs> I know. If not, you need to step it up. So the police were able to convince his brother that hey, if you happen to speak to Stephen, we just want to talk to him and clear this whole thing up. Like, just let him know uh, what was going on. So they left it at that. Meanwhile, going back to Katie, she was in critical condition at the hospital and her family was told that she would need to be airlifted to Tennessee for further treatment. And I think all of this is happening in the span of a few days. So like this is like after she arrived at the hospital, they realized that they weren't equipped for that because Bowling Green is like a smaller town. And so they were going to take her. I don't know why they had to take her all the way to Tennessee, but that's what they were going to do. So doctors were doubtful that she would even survive the trip and were prepping the family for that, that they had to do it, but mm-hmm. her chances weren't looking good. Because I think we talked about this before, like burns are no joke. Like your body can go into shock. They're super painful. You yeah. can get infections very easily. They're not, not good things. So Katie ended up making the trip and was in Tennessee and The next day, she was slowly taken out of the medically induced coma that they placed her in when she arrived at the hospital. When she began to wake up, family members remember her kind of like flailing her arms and legs and turning her head around almost as if she was still fighting against Mm -hmm. somebody when she woke up. So they were didn't know like, okay, was it because she just didn't know where she was or is it because she thought she was still in the dorm Dorm room room and was like trying to protect herself? Yeah. Also, I didn't really mention it, but at the hospital, they did discover that she was sexually assaulted and sodomized. I mean, you figured because you said that some attention had been given to where her burns were. So, I I mean, Mm -hmm. you just guessed that. Yeah. The next morning, May 7th, so this is three days after the initial incident, her cousin Barbie was told that the swelling had begun to reduce and it was looking hopeful for her recovery some other family members were telling her it looks like she might make it like her swelling's gone way down she looks more like katie um, so barbie decided to head to the hospital it doesn't say i'm assuming she was going from kentucky to tennessee i don't know i didn't look up where the drive was and how far apart it was i know the states are pretty close though yeah. so by the time barbie made it to the hospital however the swelling had returned and doctors had prepared the families to say their final goodbyes, that there wasn't anything else that they could do. The family said their goodbyes to Katie, and they sang the song My Girl, which I be- I'm guessing it's the one by The Temptations. I would, yeah, I would think so. To her as she took her final breath. Katie was just 18 years old. Mm-hmm. You know, 
And also it's in May, so she was just shy, I believe, of her 19th birthday because her birthday was June 10th. So Mm. police were now investigating a murder and Souls was their only lead after they looked into because while they were waiting for him to come back they were also checking in on the boyfriend because they had gotten into an argument but when he came in they said he was like visibly upset he was in shock he couldn't believe it and his alibi was that he was with another girl that night and it checked out so yeah what a dick fuck you maurice (laughs) (laughs) but can you imagine like he's gonna have to fill that guilt for the rest of his life that he had this girlfriend and he ended up sleeping with another girl oh, while she was, was murdered, murdered? Oh. Mm-hmm. instead of just taking her home like and or taking her to his oh, dorm or like God. whatever i know like that has to weigh on you you know so marisa's alibi checked out and police cleared him so finally souls arrived at the police station for questioning He told them that after leaving Ryan's truck, he walked toward Poland Hall behind Katie, but he was too far away, like, for her to notice that he was walking, which I'm like, that's a very stalker thing. Mm -hmm. Because why wouldn't you just be like, hey, yo, Katie, you know? Anyway, he was following behind her. He was able to catch the door, though. Like, as she entered the dorm, he was able to stop the door before it closed and locked. And so he crept in, which makes me wonder, like, what happened to the person at the <laughs> yeah, I was just gonna say front that. desk? Unless, like, maybe he just kind of waited there until that person left because she obviously had time to be sick or feel sick and, like, get into bed before he showed up into the room, mm-hmm. it seems like. So I don't know. We're unclear on the timeline because obviously we don't have Katie's yeah. timeline of events. We just know from the last time she was saw by someone else and from this guy's story he followed her to her room and he did admit that he was the one who spoke to Danica on the phone so that's why she didn't recognize the voice and he told the police that while he did have sex with her he didn't do anything to hurt her and that she was fine when he was done I guess but he said that his friend Lucas Goodrum who was 21 had called him while he was in the room and asked where he was so that way he could join them. It didn't wasn't really clear yeah. on why he would have given them the address or how he would have known. I don't know. Either way, he showed up. So that's why I'm like, he had to have been really close or something because if you remember, Danica heard a second person on, yeah. like, in the call. So somehow he got there. And obviously this was not willing because like, well, I mean, obviously, obviously, but like even with his story, because Katie had told Danica that she was scared of the two guys. So it wasn't like she was like, oh, no, we're going to get busy in a few minutes. Like Mm -hmm. she was scared. She didn't know who he was. And all of a sudden he's in her room. Yeah. Yeah. So Goodrum knocked on the door a little while later and said that he had wanted to have sex with Katie. When she told him no, he said that she would give it to him one way or another. And so Katie slapped him, which I'm like, good job. And he ended up putting his hand on her face and like shoving her into the wall. And so he laid her on the bed or she fell on the bed. It wasn't really clear because again, we're just hearing this one guy's story. And he began to rape and sodomize her. 
Sol said that Katie was in and out of consciousness and that Goodrum stabbed her multiple times. Like, he saw him stab her. It didn't say with what or what happened. What the fuck was he doing? If this is really the story, which I highly doubt this is what really happened. But what the fuck was he he doing? Just stand there and watch? What the fuck? Mm -hmm. So he finally was like, okay, I'm out. Like, I'm not going to be here. And I'm like, really? That was the stopping point for you? Like whatever anyway he said he wanted to leave and that it wasn't okay and then Goodrum threatened him and said that he would kill him and his family if he didn't shut up and do what he was told basically and who is this Luke kid whatever his name is Lucas Graham or whatever he's just a Lucas Goodrum he's just a friend of souls so he knows why is he from the mob why are you scared of him he has a pencil Apparently, in one article I did read, it said that Lucas was always more of, like, the bossy that, like, he could get people to do what he wanted for them, but that Souls was definitely more of the pushover. He would just do what he was told to do. So, it was just their personality types, I guess. Good God. So, after Goodrum was finished, uh, Souls said that he grabbed a can of hairspray and set Katie on fire. So, after hearing this, police ended up letting Souls go after taking his DNA and fingerprints because they wanted to make sure that they had enough. So they wanted to run the DNA and do all of that before they officially, like, started the process of arresting him. Plus, they wanted to talk to this guy now. So now they have another guy and they need to figure out what's going on. So then they set their sights on Lucas Goodrum. Unlike Souls, Goodrum did have a prior history of violence. In fact, earlier that evening, around, like, 11 p.m., he had a DV report filed on him by his girlfriend which like what the fuck kentucky how did both of our cases end up having to be about dv if you're in kentucky and you need help blink twice (laughs) and send us a message and we will try to help you because holy shit what is happening also these cases are like way far apart too like mine's early 2000s yours was in the 90s like what the heck get your shit together kentucky anyways so The DV report was filed on him by his girlfriend. His girlfriend was actually 17, and remember, he's 21. So she claimed that he had hit her twice in the face with a cell phone while they were in his apartment. And then while they were in his car, he held her down and wouldn't let her leave. It didn't really give me much specifics. I couldn't find any more to the story, but somehow she got away or got out. And so she told the police, and they told her that in order to obtain a warrant for his arrest on the assault charges, it would require a parent's signature because she was still a minor at 17, which doesn't make much sense to me. I was super confused by the statement. I don't know. Either way, they said her mom needed to do it. So she had told her mom what happened. So her mom was like, fine, fuck it, let's go do this. So it was around like one o'clock in the morning, I think, that her mom ended up going down to the police station and like, all right, let's do this. Like he abused my kid excuse like, me if somebody pun- punches somebody else in the face that's assault you should arrest them what the f- what the fuck i know that if makes anything, me so if mad. she's a minor attack on child abuse like what the hell statutory like, rape like i'm sure they were getting on well it didn't say they had sex but well, yeah they probably I'm, were i'm just assuming i shouldn't assume i should not do that amber marie no <laughs> but <laughs> but still no yes so the mom went to the police department But the county trial commissioner refused to come to the station since it was so late. And so no warrant was ever filed. For fuck's Uh, sake. With this domestic violence, no warrant shit. Fuck you. God. Her mom was pissed. And he was, she said that if it was important enough for her to come down at like 
one o'clock in the morning that it should have been important enough for him to come down and handle that. But she did say like she was thankful that I mean, even though her daughter was assaulted, that she isn't having to bury her daughter oh. because they find out later. Like, yeah, absolutely. What happened to Katie? So, I mean, holy shit. Can you imagine being that girlfriend of, like, he totally could have burned me alive? Like, yeah. what oh the hell? I know. So, police begin to search for Goodrum as the campus had reacted to what just happened. Female students began traveling in pairs or large groups, asking male students they trusted to escort them to class or back to their dorm rooms. And a candlelight vigil was held on the day that Katie passed in her honor, and over 100 people attended to pay their respects to her. Which is like, wow, you made such an influence if you're a freshman and that many people are coming to like pay their respects to you. Like mm-hmm. that's just, I think, a testament to what a friendly and outgoing person yeah, she absolutely. was. So police finally found Goodrum and when questioned, he stated that Souls was a liar. He's always been a liar and that he was never even in that apartment. He said that he saw Katie at the frat party because apparently he was there. So that makes sense for like that how he would have been called and like gotten over to the dorm room that quick so that kind of makes sense with the timeline so he said that he he saw her at the party and that she had just was like walking past him and ended up touching his chest like you know how you're kind of getting out of people's way and you kind of just like oh i'm like whatever I'm like, really? You had to add that bit that she, like, touched your chest? Get out of well, here. Yeah, and what does that Gross. mean? Absolutely nothing. She had zero interest, you fucker. God. No. She was drunk, and she just touched you. Yeah. Because you were probably in her fucking way. Yeah. Anyways. Cops ended up taking his DNA and fingerprinted him and checked on his alibi because he said he was home with his dad that night, but his dad remembered him coming home around... Because I think he lived somewhere in about Like, he had roommates, but... He was claiming that he went, like, home, home in a different city in Kentucky. I can't remember. I didn't write the city down. But his dad remembered him coming home around 4 or 5. He wasn't super clear on that. But the police are like, well, that's after the fire department was called. So it seems like it would have been plausible that he could have done that, taken off, gotten to his dad's. And that's not really an alibi. So they ended up arresting him on murder, rape, assault, and arson charges. Three months after his arrest, the DNA results came back. And there were no traces of Goodrum being in the room at all and none of his DNA on Katie. They did, however, find matches to Souls. They arrested him as well, but they ended up making a deal with him because they didn't really have anything to go on for Goodrum because there was no DNA. But again, like I said, the sprinkler had gone off and washed a lot of stuff away. And also, too, Katie was severely burned yeah you're already not going to get a lot of dna off of her either so since they didn't have enough evidence on goodrum souls agreed to testify against him in exchange for the death penalty being taken off the table on march 2005 the trial starts and souls story matches what he told the police until he gets to the details of his involvement because remember he told the police that he wasn't involved at all yeah now it's not going to fly because they obviously know that's not true He says that after Goodrum raped her, he ordered Souls to do the same thing to her so that way he would also be a suspect or look as guilty as well. He then was ordered by Goodrum to grab the hairspray and burn Katie. So he even changed who set Katie on fire. fire. Yeah. He wrapped the towel onto the sprinkler and then they left. 
Goodrum stuck to his claim that he was at home during that time, and since his DNA was not found anywhere, it proves that he was not in that apartment. Prosecutors brought up the suspicious behaviors of him that were reported by his roommates after the fire because they said that he started sleeping in his closet after the fire and that he had started talking about running away to Florida or Texas, like that he was just trying to get out and like leave his car there and just go. And they obviously thought that was hella weird. Yeah. On March 22nd, after just two and a half hours of deliberating, the jury found Goodrem not guilty. That was a lot of circumstantial evidence, not a lot of concrete there. (laughs) Yeah. And when asked, that's exactly what the jury said. They're just like, there wasn't enough. Mm -hmm. Like, we couldn't say that he did it. So, Souls ended up, per his plea deal, he was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. Katie's family still holds on to the belief that Goodrem did have something to do with her murder, but they're moving forward. They ended up filing a wrongful death suit against the school and, or I believe it was like, I don't know if it was entirely against the school or I guess there was like another company that ran the dorm. I wasn't a hundred percent clear. I tried to read through it, but it was a lot of legalese that I couldn't really understand. But either way, their wrongful death suit did end up winning them $200,000 from the Kentucky Board of Claims. They were also unhappy with how the dorm was handled after her death is I guess they ended up turning the room into just like a janitor's closet and so they thought that that was kind of disrespectful but I'm like what do you what do you want them to do I know I'm like I guess like but obviously no one's gonna stay in that room or like live in that room and why would you want someone living in that room and to like I mean what other room would there be necessary in a door? Are you going to turn yeah. it into some teeny tiny meditation room? Like, I don't know. Like, But nobody would want to be in. I wouldn't want to be in there. No. So yeah. it just makes sense to make it like a storage club. And then people, plus two, you don't want people like, oh, did you hear about that girl? And like creepily like trying to mm-hmm. be in the room or, yeah. oh, I want this room because this happened. And I think we talked about that a while back, like with this line of true crime. Like, yeah. where is it just not respectful? But you make it a janitor's closet. No one's allowed in there but the janitor and... Yeah. You're all good. Her cousin, Johnny, shared in the documentary that I watched that he wants her to be remembered not just for, like, what a good person she was, but even for what happened to her. Because for what happened, like, how horrific everything was to her, he wants it to have some meaning behind it. And so to help keep other people safe so it doesn't happen to someone else and it shows that there are monsters out there and people that will hurt you without you giving them reason to and so he kind of wants this to be that lesson of like be careful and be alert and I think like we're saying look out for your friends and Mm -hmm. do all of these things like it's unfortunate that we have to be this way but I mean take what happened to Katie and don't let her death be in vain like learn something from this and it's like a that. So I, it's like a cautionary tale almost. Not, I mean, I don't want to use the word tale, but you know, it's like, yeah. hey, be aware. Yeah, and I think that's not something you hear all the time from families. And I thought that was really an important message. Mm-hmm. That yeah, like I, and I think it's also the reason that we do this podcast is like, yes, these things are horrible and to these people, and we want to remember them for who they are, but we also want to remember what happened to them so we can take that and learn from it. And, like, with your story, Mm -hmm. create committees like this and and do things about these things. Like, 
also too hopefully that committee reviewed this case and did something Mm -hmm. because that's ridiculous that he wasn't already arrested for hurting because who's to say that that didn't get him escalated into that mood where he went out to yeah. hurt somebody else. Yeah. He went to a party after that. He drank. And now he's, he's He saw like, this girl getting into a car with his friend. Knew the friend. Mm-hmm. Like, knew he could manipulate the friend. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's like, if he had just been arrested the first time, this would mm-hmm. have been avoided. And Katie would still be here today. Yeah. You know? And Missed so, opportunities that could save lives. It's so sad. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So that was my story for Kentucky and the story of Katie Autry. And then to go along with that, just in case, since both of ours did cover uh, domestic violence, I just want to give out the National Domestic Violence Hotline. So it is 1-800-799-SAFE. So 7233 is the last two. So 1-800-799-7233. Yes, and we will also post a link to the website for the yes. the domestic violence hotline, the national one. Yes. So if you or anybody you know needs help, please reach out to those resources. Know that you are not alone and there are people who will back you up. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, that was dark. That was dark and sad and ugh. I mean, all of our cases are dark and sad, but this one felt especially heavy. Yeah, Absolutely. I don't know why. Just domestic violence is just, it's because I think it's such a prevalent thing. And it's like, because it's such high numbers and not necessarily that everybody gets murdered that has, that is involved in domestic violence, but it's just like, it's so out there and like probably everybody knows somebody that has been a victim or even a batterer. And yeah, so it's just, yeah, it's like it touches home for people. Yeah, it does. All right. Well. Let's flip the switch here and get into our super fun state facts. And cities. So do you want to share your city fact first or mine? Sure, I can do mine. So as I said, my city is Louisville, Kentucky. So did you know that the song Happy Birthday was written in Louisville by two sisters, Pat and Mildred Hill? So you can thank them for happy birthday. Now... I was listening. I love Trevor Noah. Mm -hmm. I think he's amazing. I know Selena also likes Trevor Noah. Yes. So I was watching, I don't know if it was a behind the scenes for The Daily Show or where it was, but he was talking Mm -hmm. about the happy birthday song. Have you ever seen that video where he talks about the happy birthday song? No, I haven't. It, It is hilarious. So if anybody wants to watch it, but he talks about how slow and depressing our happy birthday song is. And so now every time, like, it's somebody's birthday, I think about that and how his mom didn't teach him the happy birthday song that we know. And so when he started going to school, he thought of it was a different song. And so he broke out into this, like, really upbeat, like, happy birthday, it's your birthday, happy birthday. (laughs) And, like, everybody in class was like, what the fuck are you doing? What is that song? It is a very slow song. Happy birthday to you. Yeah, it just sounds super depressing. So I think that the one version he sings is he said Donald Duck's like Mickey Mouse happy birthday because back in the day, Mm. 
Happy Birthday was copyrighted. So, like, no TV show could actually sing Happy Birthday. So, if you, like, play older TV shows, I think that Happy Birthday song was copyrighted until, like, the early 2000s. And so that's why you'd never hear it because they would have to pay royalties on it. So, a whole Mm -hmm. bunch of different songs and different versions of Happy Birthday came out. So... But now anybody can sing happy birthday on anything because there's no royalty rights to it anymore. But it is. It's sad and slow and depressing. <laughs> so yeah, let's change so. that and make it a different song. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and watch that right. little video of Trevor Noah. It's adorable. He's adorable. I love him. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So my case took place in Bowling Green. And something really interesting was that in Bowling Green, they have a kind of like drive-through tour or self-guided tour um, through the city because horror master John Carpenter actually lived in Bowling Green for a lot of his life. So he moved there when he was a kid because I think he was born, I believe, in Texas. I believe. No, he was born in New York and then moved to there. And he actually attended Western Kentucky University before he went to USC, um, where he didn't graduate from USC, but he went there for like film stuff. But yeah, there's like this tour called a John Carp or it's called Real Sites, like real Mm R-E-E-L, real scary, like R-E-A-L, a John Carpenter driving tour. Because while no movie scenes were actually filmed in Bowling Green, Carpenter did make numerous references in some of his movies. So like local street and community names like Warren County or Smith's Grove Sanitarium, where Michael Myers escapes Mm -hmm. from Halloween, were actually like, I believe they're references to places in Bowling Green. So yeah, so you could just drive around and they even have like where he stayed at western kentucky university and yeah so there's a whole little driving tour that you can do for that i don't know if that's still a thing you can do but it looks like it because yeah he lived oh that's cool he lived there with his family they ended up moving there and he attended the school and i thought that was really cool because i love john carpenter halloween is Mm -hmm. one of my favorite like classic slasher flicks and yeah, so that's awesome. I love John Carpenter. So I thought that's pretty cool. So if I ever make it to Bowling Green, Kentucky, I will definitely <laughs> do that little driving tour. See where he was. Also, cool. I think that's so cute that the town is like, he's he was from here for a little while. So we're going to like. We're going to own that shit. Thing. Yeah, it has nothing to do with the movies really or anything <laughs> to do with him. But we're going to just, yeah, might as well. So <laughs> I thought that was cool. Cool, cool. All right, so I have this state fact this week, and it has to do with bourbon, which is a famous, like, Kentucky whiskey. They make bourbon whiskey in Kentucky, right? It's bourbon whiskey or bourbon and whiskey, different things. No, I think they're the same thing, but you only can call it bourbon if it's actually made in Kentucky. Kentucky, okay. So it's kind of like champagne, right? It's only champagne if it comes from champagne in France. Yes. The total number of aging barrels in Kentucky for bourbon is more than 9.1 million, which is the most ever in the modern era of American whiskey. And that includes bourbon, brandy, and other spirits. And there are now two barrels for every person living in the Commonwealth is how many barrels of whiskey. So we could each get two barrels and (laughs) that would work. So I thought that was really interesting. That's a shit ton of bourbon. That is. I do not like bourbon. I do not like whiskey. I am not that. That's not Amber's alcohol choice. It is not mine either. I just don't. 
I don't know. I'm, I'm not a dark liquor mm-hmm. person. I'm a clear liquor person, so bourbon is not my, my jam. John likes uh, whiskeys and stuff yeah. like that. I don't know if he likes bourbon, but I know he likes whiskey. When I was in college, my I love Southern Comfort, which I don't know if that's a whiskey or not. I think it's kind of considered, but it's like... it's. I think it's a whiskey. Yeah. So I like Southern Comfort. I used to drink Socos and Sprites. That was my drink of choice in college. But That sounds I, disgusting. It tastes like... <laughs> I thought it tasted like ginger ale. There you go. That, those things don't seem like they would mix well together, like a clear soda and a dark... <laughs> Thing. Hey, like why I, wouldn't you just mix it with coke like jack ooh, and coke I, well first of all i don't like coke so um oh. so that would not do it coke gives amber a headache so i can't take mm. that i can't drink that but i don't know that i was i don't know where i was introduced to that by i think my friend kate drank socos and sprites and so i tried it and i was like yes please before that i was like total vodka girl we would drink yeah. like you know those like handles of like cheap ass vodka that were like ten dollars and it was like i think we did a lot of smirnoff but there was like i don't remember it just i remember it coming with a handle it tasted like varnish it was horrid but we drank it yeah nope the one nasty drink that i used to drink uh when i first started was uh jägermeister like i don't know what it was but i could drink it out of the bottle like i would buy a tiny little bottle and me and my friend we would just share and we would drink it out of the bottle and that is disgusting but one time i got i drank too much and i threw up and now even smelling black licorice or jägermeister makes Mm -hmm. me like it turns my stomach oh yeah i can understand that i like i also like jäger i have no problem with that we used to drink goldschlager all the time (laughs) (laughs) the one with the little gold flakes I don't think I've ever drank that before. I'm like, oh my gosh, college days. How stupid I know. was that? that and MD2020s. Do you remember those? Uh-uh. Did you ever drink those? No. Maybe that was a Fresno thing. They were like, I don't know. I think they're just liquor, like a flavored liquor. They come in these little bottles. It's MD. I think it's MD2020. And yeah, they're just, oh, it's no, like no. flavored. Have you, did you ever drink Alizé? Mm-hmm. It was like, oh, oh my gosh, talk about disgusting. Like, that was disgusting. Oh, we used to drink Zimas, and we would melt Jolly Ranchers into them, (laughs) because this was, I went to college before, like, Smirnoff Ices and all those, like, fruity drinks. No, I've never seen those before in my life. Oh, my God, yeah. Okay, I guess they're wines. I didn't know that, but they're, (laughs) like, flavored things, and they're not expensive, but they're, like, like, the flavors are, like, orange Jubilee, strawberry kiwi, there's, like, a blue raspberry i don't know (laughs) those sound awful and they sound like a hangover waiting to happen oh 100 percent 100 percent but uh we used to drink those so i used to drink jaeger and md2020s and cheap ass uh smirnoff pop-off vodka and cheap bud light beer and uh i used to smoke black and milds for a little bit too oh i loved me a black and mild Black and Miles were the We shit. also used Not to. Lie. Did you ever smoke Beaties? It was like an Indian this. cigarette, but like, <laughs> like it would get you like nauseous high, like not not like oh marijuana. No. It was it was awful. Oh, and I used to like clove cigarettes. Oh, I used to think I was. Oh, the I never sh- like cloves. I used to think I was the shit. 
could have known. Oh, I used to think I was a show with my American spirits in the fucking yellow box and shit. Like, I was fucking cool. No. Oh, God. Thank God. This is a PSA for not smoking tobacco. Please do not smoke tobacco or do any of the dumb shit we're talking about right now. Although every once in a while, I do, like, miss the smell of black and mild. Like, Mm -hmm. they smell good. If any of you... It's like a... It's not a cigar. It's called something else because yeah. it's like not. It's like halfway between a cigarette and a cigar, and it has the little plastic uh, tip, tip at the yep. end. And so, for anyone who doesn't know, that's what a black and mild is, and they smell really good. Or you just very cut them, you bad for cut you. Them open and stuff them with other things. <laughs> Take yeah. Out the yep. And roll them. Well, because the wrapping is kind of like yep. how you would wrap a blunt. Yep. Exactly. So that and swisher. Not that sheets. I know. Not not that I know anything about that. I know things about that. (laughs) (laughs) I was being sarcastic. (laughs) I don't care. It's late. It's hot. Oh, I'm so sweaty all of a sudden. Yep. And now I'm just thinking about uh, black and milds (laughs) and (laughs) shitty alcohol. (laughs) Nothing like a good time. A black and mild and some shitty, cheap ass alcohol. alcohol. (laughs) To tell you that you're in your late teens, early 20s. Early 20s. Yep. Also, we do not condone underage drinking, no. despite the fact that we 100% underage drink. <laughs> oh, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit. Oh, good times. Good times. Thanks, Kentucky. Thanks, Kentucky. <laughs> bringing this up. But all right. Thank you guys so much for listening to another episode. Next week, where are we going to be? What's above Kentucky? Indiana. Ohio? Indiana? Indiana, I think. Okay. I think it goes Indiana, Michigan, Ohio. That sounds right. So, yeah, next week we will be in Indiana. And if we're not, you can yell at us because I don't know geography. (laughs) Thank you, guys. Don't forget to like and follow us at SOM Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. If you have any corrections, any cases you want us to cover in the states we have coming up, if you want to let us know that you registered to vote and filled out your census and want a shout out on the episode, email us at stateofmurderpodcast at gmail.com. You could also message us on Facebook and Instagram as well. We check those pretty frequently as well. So if you just Mm -hmm. want to say hi, we'll answer. Also... I feel like I'm missing something. No. Did I cover everything? In that I don't know. Puzzle? I stopped paying attention. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Zone out during my little spiel. But yeah, I think that's it. Email us or message us. Don't forget to follow us. Oh, if you like what you hear, leave us a review on Facebook or Apple Podcasts. It helps people find us. And yeah, I think that's it. We'll see you guys next week in Indiana. Maybe Amber will be paying attention to me that time. (laughs) Bye. Bye.